0: If I don't mess it up, it's a good king, and it's so much nicer to, to speak about whatsoever things are lovely. Unfortunately, in a cursed world, uh, is not the case always. Well, <clears throat> Unwasted Scripture is the title, and hopefully the, the, the title sets the pace for us. I've noticed on YouTube that when I have catchy titles, we get more views. <laughs> The temptation is to then tailor the titles to get more views, and I'm not going to do that. I want to try to just keep it, have it, the title match the content, or at least what I think is standing out for, this, uh, particular, for any particular study. Well, the history of Israel proves that Scripture can be wasted on people. I mean, they had the Word of God, the oracles of the Lord. And look at their history. Is anything wasted on me, Lord, is the question that, that I would ask when I, when I think about how Israel as a nation struggled. Uh, in this chapter, here are a few good men who acted on God's word. The word of God was found, and th- it was not wasted on them. At this time in history, the prophets Jeremiah and Zephaniah are ministering in Israel in the beginning of, just of, of when he comes to the throne about five years later, Jeremiah enters the scene. Habakkuk may be uh, also working at this time, but for sure, Jeremiah and Zephaniah. So we look at verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedida, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. <laughs> That'd be nice to say. I'm from Bozcath. Well, uh, he's eight years old, and he's running the place. Well, of course not. I mean, just go back in the, <laughs> with the children and pick out an eight-year-old and say, hey, from now on, you're running the church. Uh, you, you know, that would mean um, Skittles for everyone. But, of course, there are handlers. There are statesmen that are in place to, to move him along until he's ready. He must have been born when his father was 16 years old because Amnon, his dad, who was a wicked king, died at 24 years of age. And we get that last chapter, chapter 21. He's king for 31 years, though, and that means he died at about 39, 40 years of age. He is Judah's last great king of the Lord. Of course, Christ overall, but as, as far as men, mere men go. And so at eight years old, he, he becomes king. At 16 years old, the Bible tells us that he seeks the Lord, and it's a uh, passionate uh, endeavor on his part. At 20 years old, he launches a crusade as far as the tribe of Naphtali, which is almost uh, to the end all of Israel, uh, to the northern part. The Northern Kingdom had been taken away by this time by the Assyrians, but there were still some Jews, pockets of Jews here and there. And uh, he goes on this crusade at twenty years old. His passion for 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 Yahweh. The land was infested with idols. Jerusalem was infested with idols. And you know he went as far as desecrating the bones of the idolatrous. Priests, you dig them, you know, dig them up and burn the bones. Uh, here again, at, at twenty twenty years old, it was a thorough purging, uh, or at least it was a radical purging. A thorough might be a bit too too strong, not because he didn't want to, but because the infestation was so great, and it would be a second wave. So we pick this up in Second Chronicles thirty four, the parallel passage to this one in Kings twenty two. For in the eighth year of his reign, he was still young. He began to seek God, the God of his father David. So uh, <clears throat> there he is at 16 years old, passionately seeking the Lord, taking away sc- excuses from our teens, right? Because he's a teen. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, wooden images, carved images, and molded images. He's 21 years old when he starts that. And when he turns 26, they find... Well, at 26, he's rebuilding the temple or renovating the temple that had had just been damaged by decades of of wickedness from the throne. And uh, they find the Book of the Law at that time. And again, it is unwasted on this man. He is already moving forward. He gets the scripture and he ramps it up even more. He doubles down on his commitment Uh, Sort of in your face, Satan. Verse 2, he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh and walked in all the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Maybe as a boy he heard the story of David and Goliath and said, I want to be that. that. I want to be that kind of man. Uh, Imagine if David was one of your direct ancestors. Imagine if you could say, you know what, David was my great, 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 great. I mean, it was just impressive. Well, this man, that wasn't wasted on him as it was on others, on his own father. And much of the time, his grandfather, Manasseh, was king. It says here in verse 2, he walked in the ways of his father, David. Uh, At eight years old, becoming king and just continuing forward. Again, I believe the life of David influenced him. The, David's fingerprints are on the man's life. Uh, who else would you point to? Who else would be the candidate to have the, the greatest impact on, on this man, Josiah? Uh, these must have been devout men of Yahweh around him as he's growing up, as they're handling him. Men of noble character. That will really come out when the scripture that they had lost is, is then found. It says in verse 2 he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He did not veer as Joram. Remember, Joram had this wonderful beginning. His life was saved from wicked Athaliah, his grandmother doing this, you know, purging her own grandchildren, killing them so that she could have power and uncontested power. But Jehoiada, the priest, and, and his and his wife, they just came to his rescue. And, and brought him to the throne. And we read uh, in Kings that uh, Jehoram did wonderfully so long as Jehoiada was alive. But after Jehoiada died, he became evil. Even executing Jehoiada's son. Uh, but but here, um, th- that though there are parallels between uh, Jehoram renovating the house of God in the days of Jehoiada and Josiah renovating it, uh, they're not the same men. This man does not turn to the right or the left. Now that goes back to Deuteronomy, but probably they probably had some of the books such as Joshua and Judges. It seems that it was Moses' book or books that was missing. We'll come to that in a moment. But Joshua, when he becomes the leader of the people of Israel... God uh, has a little one-to-one with him, and it's a a wonderful exchange. Well, really a monologue, God doing all the speaking. He says, only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. Don't deviate. We watch people claim to be Christians, and they go to the right, and they go to the left, without shame. And they turn on you for pointing it out. Say, you do know that's a sin, don't you? That's all right. There's no problem. Well, anyway, um, this, uh, the story just gets better as it goes, goes on. Verse 3, Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, son of Azaliah, the son of Mishulam, to the house of Yahweh, saying... Now, before we get to what uh, the king's message was, why do we need to know these guys? (laughs) Isn't that a little comical? Uh, But uh, for them, for the Jewish people at the time, this was, you know, this was their culture. They wanted these things. Well, he's 26 years old now, at verse, verse 3. I gave you an overview earlier. Well, here we're coming to some of the details. I think... 2 Chronicles 34 gives us more details, but King's does a good job nonetheless. This is his 18th year as king. According to Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah is called to the office of prophet in the 13th year. So he's got, Jeremiah's five years now, a prophet in Israel. Uh, I think he's a veteran. Well, anyway, uh, Josiah's 18th year, in this 18th year, They're going to find the book of Moses. And here's Jeremiah's reaction to when they find that book. I have to spread it out a little bit or else we'll stay on one verse too long. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. I mean, you just, you got to love Jeremiah. You know, you look at Jeremiah and Paul and say, God has a plan for your life. Paul, you're going to get stoned, beat up, caned, but but you are going to be a dynamo. Jeremiah, you're going to be put to near death several times, and you'll never really be accepted by your people. And so these men thought that God was worthy, that their suffering was worth it, because their faith in God. How about emotional suffering? Do we think God is worth that? Are we able to say, look, this world is cursed, But God is something greater. And i got to swim through this junk here with everybody else. And I'm going to do it in a way that glorifies the Lord and not uh, scrape my knuckles all the way through. That is an art. And it is available to us. Well, Jeremiah, your words were found and I ate them. Scripture was unwasted on this man. But it is wasted unless it gets deep inside of us. Well, we know that. Study to show yourself approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly opening up the word of God. That's what Paul told Timothy. It wasn't wasted on Timothy. It says in verse 3 that the king sent Shaphan the scribe. This is a remarkable character in Scripture. And there are a few of them here and there in Scripture that they just get a mention and there's a few dots you connect. And you say, boy, these guys were really something else. With the exception of one of his four sons, uh, he had remarkable influence on his boys. Uh, they showed up often enough through Jeremiah's life to save Jeremiah. Uh, this man, Shaphan, is a noble father, and uh, the first one is Ahikam. We'll pick that up in Jeremiah. Cross-referencing Jeremiah again, because he's one of the prophets at the time that Josiah is king. Certainly, the most prolific writing prophet. And they brought Uriah Now, okay, let me set that up. So, Uriah was a prophet, and he pronounced judgment on Josiah's sons for the evil they were doing. Well, What did he? he they, they killed him. He fled to Egypt. They sent people after him, and they they killed him for standing up, for doing just what Jeremiah was doing. So, uh, and they they brought Uriah from Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim, the king, who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Nevertheless, the hand of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. So this man, Shaphan, who is uh, the king's scribe, a confidant of King Josiah, his son saves the life of Jeremiah. And I'm sure there's much more that's not written about these men, their contribution to righteousness. Then he has another son, son, Elisa. uh, And again, by him, Jeremiah sent the letter to the Jews captive in Babylon. That's that letter that everybody likes to quote, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know, you know, uh, the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace. And, and, you know, when you listen to that letter, you have to say, wait a minute now. The people God is speaking to are those who have been taken captive to a foreign land amongst idols. And Jeremiah is telling them, God telling them through Jeremiah, stay in that land and work righteousness you're not coming back to Jerusalem. You're going to stay there. And I want you to make houses. I want you to be righteous. I want you to glorify me before the Gentiles. And, and so, and then God says, I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace to give you a future and a hope. And I think it helps to keep that context when we uh, quote that scripture. Not that it cannot apply to us, but there's a little bit more to the story. There are a few verses in the Old Testament that really are Old Testament verses, as there are some in the New that are really New Testament. And you've got to be careful how uh, we understand them. I think it's beneficial to. Well, anyway, a third son, Gemariah, uh, he tried to prevent Jehoiakim from burning Jeremiah's prophetic scroll. He didn't succeed, but the fact that he... He, you know, stood up and said, don't do this, is, is, is impressive. Again, Shaphan is their father. But the fourth son, Anaya, he was an idolater. This separated him from his spiritual brothers. And, uh, of course, that's, that's the story we have from the scriptures. So here's this short mention of Shaphan, and you say, well, he's just a king scribe. Well, no, there's a little bit more to the story. Uh, his influence on his son, his influence on on uh, josiah and we're going to his influence here what happens in this story so anyway, continuing in verse three that the king sent Shaphan to the house of Yahweh now he's, Josiah the king is moving to restore the house of God. Uh, the temple restoration, as I mentioned, parallels those of Jorams in chapter twelve. 2 Chronicles 24, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of his life, all the days, pardon me, not all the days of his life. Let me reread this. Joash did what was right in the sight of Yahweh all the days of Jehoiada the priest, as I mentioned earlier. Well, there's the scripture verse that makes that clear. 2 Chronicles 24, 2. For both projects... Uh, the people funded the repairs of the temple and the priest collected the funds. Uh, Those who kept the threshold was that element of the priest that guarded the temple doors to make sure nothing unclean came in. I'll I'll quote that, an event in the book of Acts that uh, is one source of verification for it. But uh, they handed the funds over To the workmen, both in in the days of uh, Josiah and Jehoash. There was this element of integrity and trust between the priest and the the tradesman. And and so it was remarkable. And yet it was all wasted on Jehoash, but not wasted on Josiah. Verse 4 He says, the king, now this is what the king wanted them to do. He says, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of Yahweh, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand, verse 25, of those doing the work, who are overseers in the house of Yahweh. Let them give it to those who are in the house of Yahweh doing the work, to repair the damages of the house, verse 26 now, I'm verse 6, pardon me, to carpenters, the builders, and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. And so this is the command to the high priest to oversee this renovation of God's house, and the integrity is just quite amazing. In the days of when, when Jerusalem is infested with idolatry and corruption, there are a few good men still there, still trustworthy. And this Hilkiah, he assisted Josiah in reforming the backslidden people. Uh, this Hilkiah, the high priest, is, is another good man. He will be executed when the Babylonians uh, finally show up to take people away. It says here in verse 6, that they may count the money which has been brought into the house of Yahweh. Uh, Well, I've already commented on that. And he says, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. So again, the priests stationed themselves at the temple gates. They collected the funds. The people would give the funds. they put it in the box. Uh, Maybe this is where churches get the practice of passing the offering plate. And um, that's not a A sarcastic remark, it is just a plain remark. Uh, We don't have to do it that way, but that is one way uh, to do it. When we started this church, we bought the little pouches for the collection and never took them out the box. God just said, I don't want you to do it that way. Um, I want you to do it this way. And so we, we have the boxes available for the people because tithing is a personal thing. And it's uh, if you forget the tithe, you will remember the tithe if your heart is right with the Lord. Uh, I've been saying, Did I write a check this month? You go back to the screen and you realize, I missed it. You scramble to make it up. Uh, this is a personal thing. So anyhow, uh, just because we do it this way does not mean we're criticizing other people. We have other things to criticize them for. <laughs> anyway, uh, I mentioned that they would close the doors if necessary. Acts chapter 21 is the story of Paul's arrest, another arrest at the temple. And when, when the brouhaha began, we pick it up in Acts 21 verse 30, and all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Well, this, these priests that were the gatekeepers that were closing the door and saying, well, you ain't bringing it in here. Uh, so that's who these, these, these men are. A high tradition. And imagine if you were a priest in, in, in Judah and you were a gatekeeper, you belong to a, a high tradition. And uh, hopefully not wasted. Anyway, verse 5 says, to repair the damages of the house. Well, his, one of his first acts of the Reformation was to purge the land and then restore the temple. Uh, all that follows... Grows out of this. When we get to the discovering the word of the Lord, it's growing out of the, the these the men and their integrity, even if they didn't have all of their scripture. And then once they get the scripture, again, it is not wasted. They do something with it. And so, in connection with this heart for God, comes the discovery of the book of the law. And you know, God God is the one that orchestrated that. God could have kept that law hidden. But they found it during the renovation of the temple. Verse, uh, and thank God, that none of the pagan Jews found it. They probably would have destroyed it. Verse 7, however, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into the hand because they deal faithfully. So as I mentioned, the integrity is just, that uh, they had this trust; that They were operating off of the other man's word. Which is, you know, try that. Go to the bank and say, look, I promise I'll pay you back. Uh, that's not going to happen. Although I, I, a few years back, I had a loan when we were, first got here and pretty much broke. And, and the, the the bank who, the agent said, you know, I'm just going to approve this. I, I'm, I'm just going to do it. And I went, <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Uh, And I just remember that that was was old-fashioned banking. Well, I don't know if you can, you know, banks have a bad reputation. Anyway, I need to move on away from that. So these workers evidently, the evidence, when I say evidently, according to the evidence from the record, they embraced the sacred work of the temple. This is very important, I think, especially for men somewhere in their 30s and 40s, uh, you know, there there are some men in that age category that lack a sense of the sacred. They think it's not cool to, to say that, you know, some things you just don't mess with. And they become sloppy. And I, one way to illustrate that is when I first became an usher uh, back in 1740-something... <laughs> The head usher had that attitude where he wanted to be a cool Christian. See, we don't, you know, we don't have an organ. We have guitars and we don't have to wear coat and ties at Calvary Chapel. And when we were, one morning we were preparing the communion articles and he sort of munching on the bread. And I, I was, you know, I, right away all the alarms were going, I said, this is just not right. And it wasn't my place at the time to say anything uh, God just, you know, marked it. I've never forgotten it, and it was just uh, this immaturity and this lack of reverence. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. Oh, this is holy bread; you can't eat it. It's not the idea uh, to understand the things that are sacred. It is, it is by consent, not demand. Um, the the communion, the communion, um, the cup, the articles for the cup, the, the grape juice. I will never drink it in the house of the Lord unless I'm having communion. I want to have lunch and say, hey, there's some left over from last week. I'm going to grab some. Not that it would be a sin. Well, it would be for me because it's my conscience now. And so when you come across some young men, they can just be a little silly. And they want to show you how cool they are. And they don't have to be reverent. Uh, That is a trap. And it is immaturity. And hopefully uh, they'll figure it out. Uh, hopefully some of the older brothers can just nudge him into the right direction. And I see it from time to time. Um, there are just some things that they need to be in a separate category. The sanctuary here. Um, do you think we should have bingo in this room? Or any other room in this church? Uh, if, well, if you're Roman Catholic, you won't have a problem with it, but we're not Roman Catholic. So anyhow, this... Um, these men here—they were serious about their faith. This is God's house. We're not working on a, you know, a garage or something for somebody. Not that we should do shabby work, but this, their head was just where it needed to be. And I think this is one of the reasons why the historians are, are telling us this story. They're saying to Christians, "Look at these men. That what was their motivation? They were there's a self motivation." because of their maturity in the faith. You could hear them saying, I'm so grateful we've got a man like Josiah on the throne that is upholding what we believe as a people, even though they did not have the Bible knowledge that they should have had, they had enough. And so uh, here's a word that I would like young men to grab hold of, devout. It, It means to be devoted to. It means that some things are in a separate category. And there's a reason why they are there. And there's a reason why they should be there. And that, uh, no, that we're not making idols out of them. We just have a deeper understanding. Because I consumed your word, it got in me, and when it did that, it created things in me that would not have otherwise been there. So don't be embarrassed by holiness. It's okay to say to somebody at the water cooler, No, I'll be in church. You don't like it? (laughs) No, don't say that part. (laughs) It's so easy to get in the flesh, right? But for you, not for me. Um, Anyway, he says, because they deal faithfully. Accountability based on integrity and reason. Not just integrity. There's more to it. I would like that to be said about all of us. Who wouldn't, what Christian would say, no, I don't don't want that. I don't want to be known as one who deals faithfully. It's hard because the flesh is so the flesh is always up to no good. Well, anyway, verse eight, then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh, and Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. See these two guys, devout a devout priest and a devout scribe. You could even stretch it, dare I say. A devout politician, not devout, a devout believer who was a politician. This, uh, there's still a few good men around the king, and as men renovated the temple, Yahweh is renovating their hearts, and they're not yet picking up on that, but they will. What a great story this is when you think about all the other kings we've had to deal with. The nation, as I mentioned, infested with idolatry for decades, Manasseh and Ammon, through their reigns. And during that time, the temple was defiled, it was desecrated, it was damaged. You can read that in Second Chronicles 34, just how Josiah goes in, he's breaking down the idols and cutting down the incense altars, and he just turns it into a chop shop to get this stuff out of there. And yet, neither king nor priest knew the whereabouts of Moses' writings. It was oral tradition. Much of it passed to them, but that that is so fragmented. It's an inferior knowledge. It's a knowledge, but it's inferior to what they could have. And the people of God lost the word of God in the house of God. They, They were aware of the existence of these scriptures, and they lived without them. And this was an imperative section of scripture that they're going to find. Likely some inspired saint saw that if I don't hide this word, these idolaters are going to get it and destroy it. And you know, you just can't you know tuck it into your vest, (laughs) these scrolls. I mean, you can't walk out with it and get, get caught and they'll destroy it. So some saints or saint, they hid it to keep it safe for future generations. And now God is bringing it to the light. The fact that the scripture was lost by the people called to be God's people would be unbelievable if we didn't see it in our own days. The Bible is, this is being repeated, the Bible being insignificant in so-called churches who have no use for God's word. And, And it's been this, it's not new, it's been happening since the beginning of the church. It happened in Israel. And so this is very much believable. It says in Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Man, you've got to like this guy even more, Shaphan. This is, uh, Hilkiah is that noble high priest who found the book and he knew what he had. And he knows what to do with it. He doesn't say, ooh, I'm going to put this in my home. This will be a wonderful thing, you know, a showpiece or something. Uh, He gives it to a man close to the king. He already knows he's got a righteous king. He knows Shaphan is a righteous man. It's likely, again, either all the books of Moses, the five books, or it certainly is Deuteronomy. It's in there, and that'll come out. Anyway, verse verse 9. So Shaphan, the scribe, went to the king. Pause there. Remember, he read it. He doesn't take it, and so he just blindly goes to the king. Look what I got. He takes it, and he reads the word of God. And you can imagine he's saying, oh, this is incredible. Got to get this to the king. So some time must pass. Uh, <clears throat> how long does it take to read Deuteronomy? In one sitting. And verse, verse 9. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king. Bringing the king word saying. Your servants have gathered the money. That was found in the house. And have delivered it into the hand of those. Who do the work. Who oversee the house of the Lord. So Shaphan goes in. And he's keeping to court protocol old business first. You, I would have gone in and said, we found the book of the law. He's not know what he does. He goes to the king and he keeps court protocol. He's not emotional. Well, I mean, there's emotions there, but he's not out of control. And uh, now he takes care of old, old business and now on to new business. Verse 10. Then Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Uh, This man is just, you know, just an admirable believer. He no doubt read selected passages. As I mentioned, most likely from Deuteronomy, we all get that because of the king's reaction and comment that is made by Huldah the prophetess. And it is noteworthy that the people were living or attempting to live faithfully when the scroll Uh, was discovered. And it is also noteworthy that a remnant of the king's court is trustworthy enough to handle the scripture and not destroy it. There are some other things that come out. Verse 11, now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. And we mentioned that, of course, that is an outward display of inward distress. But I'm thinking... It was a selling feature with the clothing in those days to offer clothes with pre-tear, a pre-tear feature. <laughs> because I don't get it. I mean, if I tried to tear my shirt, I'd be struggling, and that would kill the whole moment. It'd be so embarrassing. You couldn't get the garment torn. So what are they wearing like? I don't know. I could rip my buttons open. Uh, but, uh, you know, anyway, I, all right, back to being serious if we have to. Second Chronicles 34:19. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. It's emphasized there, but it's almost like he's pulling the fire along. What he heard has caused this. What the word of God said, it got inside of him deep and it changed everything. If any of the books would yield this reaction to a Jewish king, it would be Deuteronomy, gauging by his reaction. And the commentators are, are, are unanimous. They're unanimous. This is Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 30. When we look at verse 16 of Second Kings 22, we read, Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Well, that's Deuteronomy 28 through, through 30, the, the curses and the blessings section. Uh, his, his reaction reveals his ignorance that he has, didn't know this, but that doesn't mean he's now, oh, I didn't know that, I'm innocent, that's not his reaction, I didn't know this, I'm guilty. That's his reality. That's what happens when we come to Christ, is it not? We realize, I am a sinner. It's not, I am a sinner, but, you know, I didn't know. It's, I am a sinner, and I need, I need forgiveness. And it often accompanied with tears and, and great joy at the same time. Remember, he's only 26 years old. Um, it is profound. Um, when I gave my life to Christ, I was about 26 years old. We do not read of him saying, well, how do I know this is the word of God? Well, the content did to him what nothing else could do. And this is true to this day. One thing the Bible does, unlike anything else on earth, is it lays bare the roots of our nature. When I say that, you know, you dig down to get to the roots of your nature. It uncovers them. There is no moral mirror that comes close to that of the Bible. What else are you going to read that can cut like the Bible does? Shakespeare? I I mean, uh, this is the reason why men don't like Scripture and seek to set it aside or attack it or destroy it or belittle it. One old pastor, Arno Gebilin, he said, men do not trouble themselves so much to discover and point out flaws and discrepancies in homer or herodotus or aristotle or shakespeare no but scripture judges them judges their ways and their lust that's why everybody likes quoting shakespeare or you know or homer or one of these other folks or some one new new johnny come lately because it doesn't do what the Scripture does. The, strip, the Scripture carries its own credentials to the heart. And when you hear it, you, you can say, I can't, I'm, that's me. I can't get away from that. And that's what you're faced with. Acts 24, verse 25, when Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness and judgment to come. We read, now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control... And judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. The word of God living in power, sharper, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Now I'm going to quote D.L. Moody in a minute. I've used this, quoted this before, but it's just so appropriate for this section. France, and I'm not quoting him yet. France thought that the Bible stood in the way of their progress, especially during their reign of terror. And they threw it overboard. Psalm 11, verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, here's Moody preaching on this very thing. It is said that a century ago, now remember Moody is in the late 1800s. That's when this was preached. It is said that a century ago, men were spending millions every year in France in the publication and distribution of infidel literature. Voltaire would be one of them. What has been the harvest has France reaped? Mark the result. The Bible was suppressed, God was denied, and hell broke loose. Half the children born in Paris were bastards. More than a million of persons were beheaded, shot, drowned, outraged, and done to death between September 1792 and December 1795. Since that time, France has had 13 revolutions in 80 years, and in the Republic, there has been an overturn on an average once in nine months. One-third of the births in Paris are illegitimate. 10,000 newborn infants have been fished out at the outlet of the city sewers in a single year. Well, we're not around to get to where Moody's sources were, but we, we do know that France just lost it all. And that is enough of history to attest to this. And so the, what we're talking about is what happens when there is not God's word because men have outlawed it. And we're lo- looking at attempts in this country But let's go back to one phrase Moody says, the Bible was suppressed, God was denied, and hell broke loose. How many times has that happened? Even in the book of Kings. Josiah will bring the reform to the people. uh, But they had swung already too far to be retrieved. As he gets rid of a lot of this, there will be a righteous remnant. There will be those that will, will, will be made righteous. But overall, they're too far gone. And they're the ones that are going to bring the judgment through Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah 3.10. And yet, for all this, their treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says Yahweh. A prophet could see these people are just acting like they're righteous because of Josiah. But in reality, they love their idolatry. Uh, verse, you know, some people do... Put on their best behavior only when they go to church unless you step on their toe. Verse 12, Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakam the son of Shaphan, Achbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, Esaiah a servant of the king, saying, Okay, so these are, this is the, the detail that's being dispatched to the prophetess. This is what Siah says. When he hears the word preached, He's got to do something. He says, go inquire, verse 13, of Yahweh for me, for the people and all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh that is aroused against us because of our fathers. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so he is saying, this is God's word. It is real. His judgments." He ain't, he's not playing around. We need to do something. And so the man of God moves men into action. And uh, whenever this happens, it's going to yield a testimony. And that's fruit. But we can think of fruit as being something, you know, very pleasant and wonderful to the flesh. When the fruit can come in the way of persecution, of martyrdom, of death. Uh, the fruit of the life of the apostles. You know, they they all died. Of course, maybe one did not, but they all died uh, through persecution. That's righteous fruit. They stood their ground, uh, giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the king heard the word of God, there was no debate or discussion about it being trustworthy. Well, ancient manuscripts, uh, there was none of that. He went right to action. And I fear we complicate things when we overthink them when it comes to God's word. And we dismiss that initial hit. When you first read the Bible and you found out you were a sinner, did you need a theologian to tell you what you were reading? That's what Paul said. Having begun in the spirit, you're now being made perfect by your intellect or your, your flesh. What's what you don't don't drift. Drop that anchor down and stop drifting away. Anyway, Josiah wanted no part of God's judgment upon them, himself included. Uh, even David, the prophet king, subjected himself to the office of the prophets on spiritual matters, as did Hezekiah and Uzziah. Though even Uzziah got out of bounds, but he got back to it. Uh, God maintains his distance between the church and the state, and that's why the prophet and king aren't you know, operating at the same strength. Wherever you find a strong Christian, you're going to find a Bible-reading Christian. That is a fact. Have you ever met a Christian ignorant of the Bible that you admired in their faith? I have not. A person can be ill-educated, not well-educated, but they love the Lord and they know enough of the Bible and it is right. And that person is admirable. Uh, acts 20 verse 32 so now brethren i commend you to god and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified i got a few minutes here so i like telling this story again years ago i there was a, a, a car stuck on the road they were in a dangerous spot and i just was able to Push the car off the road. Can't do that now. Everybody's got airbags. <laughs> but back then, you just, you know, you come, ease up to him. You put it in neutral. You push him off the road. And it was a car full of people going to church. I know because the, the driver was an old man, uh, probably three 400 years old. And he, he had a collar on. And I know he was a Pentecostal, you know. And he wanted to give me money. I just love telling this story because it's just God, not because it's, it's me. Uh, but he, I, he went to give me money, and, and I quoted, "I've never seen the righteous forsaken no, their offspring begging for bread." I, I'm not going to take your money. And he started weeping, because he knew the scripture and he knew its application. He knew instantly that God sent an angel, and he was just moved by that. And you just, you know, you don't have to share. Yeah, his theology, according to me, is all messed up, and he probably would say, "Yeah, but you're dry as you know dead man bones." <laughs> but he loves, he loved the Lord. I got that. Just a beautiful moment. And I had a lot of hair. So, and it's a side note. <laughs> anyway, verse 14. So, Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim, Akbor, Shaphan. Okay, these names. Went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of, okay, those more names. Well, Tikvah an easy one. The, the son of Harhaz, keeper of the wardrobe. It sounds like a fairy boy, but he's not. Since he dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, uh, and they spoke with her. All right, well, there is a lot of parts here. The keeper of the wardrobe, either the king or or the um, the priest. It's not specified, but again, he there were vestments to be to be managed. The second quarter probably comes about when the Jews were escaping the northern kingdom, the Assyrians coming, and many of the. Tribes from the north were coming into Jerusalem, uh, refugees, and they had to expand the city to make room for them. And that's likely the second quarter there. Well, uh, when there are not enough men doing what they are supposed to do before the Lord, God finds a woman who will do it. This is a story of Deborah, and this is a story of Holder. In Bar, uh, Barak, he didn't trust, you know, I'm not going unless you go. The right response would have been, what are my orders? God said this, I'm off. But that's not what uh, Barak does. He, he, he said, I'm not going if you don't go with me. And she tells him right out, if, you, if I go with you, the battle's not going to be, uh, you know, you're not going to get all the glory you should have gotten for your faith. That's the implication. And, and so the, you know, this is just a fact. And if, if you are under the influence of antichrist culture, you'll be offended by this. Well, you have to be offended by this, but the Bible stands. As mentioned, Jeremiah had been around as a prophet for five years. Zephaniah was likely around. Why did they not go to them? I think two reasons why. One is they probably weren't available. Jeremiah lived about three miles away. I don't know where Zephaniah lived. Uh, He he was actually a a member of the court. But anyway... I think the that's one reason. The second reason is the king felt the matter was so urgent it couldn't wait. I don't want you to send out. I, I want the answers now, and they picked up on that. And they said, "Well, hold her the prophetess. She's here. She's close by. Let let's go to her." And she, of course, she is genuinely a prophet of of the Lord. Um, the, as I mentioned, the two times the the women show up as. Uh, prophetesses is when the men are not doing their job. Not enough of the men are doing it. It's sort of a, a rebuke for the, for, uh, from the Lord on the men. And they do They do um, seem to recover. Once the, there are enough men reestablished themselves, then they resume the, the leading role. So that um, is just the way it is it says uh, here, she dwelt in Jerusalem the second quarter. I already, already explained that in verse 15 now. Then she said to them, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place, and on its inhabitants all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. I'm going to go back to hold in a moment. The idea is not that women can't do it. It's that God has a different structure. And that is what must be followed, because the whole cart gets upside down. And we're seeing this. We're seeing men being, uh, or the, you know, it's, it's not cool to be, you know, a man. It's a male aggression or some other junk, and they're trying to turn men into women and women into men. Uh, I saw a headline: "Why men don't want to date nowadays?" Yeah, you because know, femininity is gone. That's one of the reasons. How about asking that question and why? So, okay, I don't want to go on a personal rant, but I do. I do strongly believe, as I know that Bible-believing Christians do, God has um, outlined the role of the male and the female without devaluing any of them. A woman is not less valuable to God because she is in the role of a helpmate. And a man is not more valuable to God because he is supposed to be the leader. Uh, It is supposed to be teamwork. Well, coming back to this, where uh, she now speaks with the prophecy, and God essentially says, "I'm going to bring calamity on Jerusalem uh, and Judah." God reaffirms his commitment to judge a stubborn people who kept provoking him. His patient, doing everything he could to stop this. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. So there it is. Here it is from Second Chronicles. Her speaking. Which they have read before the king. So she is saying the curses read before the king will be fulfilled on Judah. Where are those curses found in Moses' writing? Again, chapters 28 through 30 of Deuteronomy. That's where they really are. You could pick any chapter almost in Deuteronomy and it would benefit the king. Chapter 4 is one of the most powerful verses in Deuteronomy. Chapter 13, you know, you don't get your little weird old dreams. If they take you away from my word, then it's the devil. Uh, Just a powerful book, Deuteronomy is. Anyway, imminent judgment for insolent blasphemy. That's what she is saying. This place is going to get judged. Verse 17 because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. So God is standing by his judgment to come. He's saying this is not going to be a fluke. It's not a whim of mine. It's not that, oh, I missed that. I didn't see the Babylonians coming. None of that. God is saying this is a deliberate judgment for me. When you see the Babylonians show up, You understand this is my judgment. Uh, Daniel, he adjusted to to it, as did Ezekiel. Many Jews did not. Uh, So they had disrespected the true God, respected the fake gods, brought this upon themselves. They provoked God when they had every chance not to provoke God, and they invited this judgment. Uh, What was abominable to God was honored by them. And the righteous would say to this, as Josiah and Hulda would say, Amen. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place. God retains this right, even over sacred places, sacred gifts, which was the temple. The temple was a gift of God. And he's going to be the one that allows it to be destroyed. It says, and it shall not be quenched. God says it's final. Verse 18 But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard. Verse 19, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before Yahweh, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says Yahweh. So Huldah is still pronouncing the, the word of God. Uh, the, again, pointing to Deuteronomy 28 to 30, with, you know, the, what God is saying. I, the, what I spoke against the people for their uh, corruption, the curse that would come. And then God says, I saw that it broke your heart, that you had offended me. Isaiah 57:15. 15. I dwell in the high and holy place, Going back to keeping things sacred, right? With him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So when the woman reached out and touched the robe of Christ and he said, who touched me? And Peter said, what are you talking about? The crowds are pressing me. Who touched you? And Christ was saying, I make a distinction between those who are curious about me and those who are serious about me. Those who eat the word and those who just want to peck. And that's what we're getting here. God is saying, I see your sincere heart. He says, because, verse 19, your heart was tender. It was responsive to the word of God, even wounded. He humbled his heart rather than hardening his heart in unbelief or resentment. I mean, how, what, are you going to judge us? You know, that wasn't his response. Uh, that they would become a desolation and a curse, severe judgment, just as Deuteronomy pronounced. And you tore your clothes and wept before me, the outward sign of torn peace. I also have heard you, bottom of verse 19, scripture not wasted on this man, verse 20. Surely therefore I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Surely, it says in verse 20, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. If we understand that by peace, God means peace with him, the prophecy is valid. If you carnalize the verse and say, no, this is worldly peace, then you you have a big problem. I see this because Josiah dies on the battlefield. He doesn't die a peaceful death. He dies in war. And you say, well, how did he die in peace? Well, he's right with God. And he does not see the judgment of God upon, as God said, your eyes will not see it upon the people. His death was not a judgment on him, but it did precipitate the judgment to come. Uh, Peace with God is the highest known peace to man. If the lions are chewing you in the Colosseum because you believe in Christ and devouring your children along with you, you have peace with God because of your faith. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul didn't lose that peace when he was beheaded. He retained it. He was beheaded because he had peace with God. And to have peace with God is to not have peace with Satan. By default, you cannot have the two together. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus suffer persecution. The, fa- <coughs> pardon me. <clears throat> the f- The faithful church is spared judgment, the great tribulation, Revelation three, for you have a little strength and kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse ten, he's talking to that church at Philadelphia. Because you have kept my word to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I don't know how people say the church is going to go through the tribulation period. I mean, yeah, the, 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 uh, <clears throat> the, 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 there will be no church in the great tribulation period. Just the false church, the apostate church, will survive the rapture, if you can say it that way. Not much of a survival They will continue on, and they will be joined to Antichrist. But the true Christians will be removed. And those who are converted, and there will be millions of converts, tribulation converts, they won't have a church to go to, because churches will be outlawed. But they will be believers, and they will die for their faith. So uh, the, the established church, the local church in Philadelphia, God using them as a template... For future faithful churches saying, you will not go through the great tribulation period because it is my wrath on the unbelievers, not on the church. And I don't know why there's just Christian. No, we got to go through it. I have a guilt complex. I think they're just too much into the uh, Old Testament, not into the new. That will happen. If you are imbalanced, you're just a Christian that stays in the Old Testament, you will become legalistic and guilty all the time. But if you come to the new, you're liberated. You begin to see things that you otherwise would have missed. So when you find a new convert, you don't say, hey, why don't you go read Genesis? Go read Leviticus. You, know what I mean? you don't do that. You take them to the New Testament. Paul said, we are ministers of the new covenant. That old covenant is an acorn. You can't get the oak without it. But it's, it's not the finished product. Well... And that's a hard lesson for some. He says, and your eyes shall not see the calamity which I will bring on this place. That's the peace. Herein is the priest that he's promising him. Uh, Jeremiah will, will. Jeremiah has peace with God, but he's going to see the whole horrible thing as he writes the lamentation of Jeremiah from a cave. And he borderlines blasphemy. He gets like Job. And he gets right up to the end. He says, I hate this. I hate my life. And, but he brings it back before he goes too far. Uh, So they brought back word to the king, unedited, the scripture, not wasted on these righteous, this righteous remnant in Jerusalem, and hopefully not wasted on us. Let's pray. Now, Father, uh, so much to think about, but it's so nice to have righteous people to uh, analyze and to hopefully even serve as a model for us in our faith. We thank you for your word. We pray you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you this in Jesus' name.